This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Friends, it is such a pleasure to have Jim Nance on our show. Jim is an award winning American sportscaster who has covered every sport since he joined CBS over 25 years ago, including the NFL, the NCAA, and the PGA. Jim is also a really good friend and what we call in our family a brother from another mother. Most importantly, he's the proud father of Caroline, Finley, and Jameson, and is married to the love of his life, Courtney. So, Jim, welcome to Health Gig. I am so happy to be on, and you just completed the best introduction of my life. So thank you for that. (laughs) Well, I would say off the bat, but I'm going to switch it to off the tee. We have to ask you, how did you come up with the iconic Hello, friends. It's an often repeated phrase around our house, and we try to say it like you do. (laughs) Thank you. And he also opened up this podcast with Hello, friends. That was duly noted. You know, it really has been now 17 years since I first uttered that on the air, and it came at a time when my dad was struggling in his battle with Alzheimer's. And he was in Houston, and by this time, we could no longer sustained care at the home, which was just crushing for all of us in the family. So we had to put him in an assisted living facility right over there by your, by really close to where your parents live. And I just tried to play games with him to try to keep his mind sharp and moving and versatile and agile. So I would play name games with him, with friends and try to get him to remember their last name. He had nothing but friends in his life. And when I was leaving him this one particular day in August of 02, I said, Dad, when I'm on the air now this weekend in Minneapolis, I'm going to look into that camera and I'm going to say, hello, friends. And that's for you. That's my code that I'm thinking of you. It was like long ago, Carol Burnett used to tug on her earlobe. And that was kind of her little, I love you code. So I did that. And of course, I realized as soon as I walked out of the room, the odds were, because of what he was battling. He probably already forgot that two minutes later. Mm. But that weekend on the Saturday broadcast from the PGA Championship at Hazeltine, I said, hello, friend. Jim Nance here. Of course, my name is my dad's name. I'm the third, but I was really Jimmy around all my family and close friends because my dad was Jim. But I just thought it might stir something in his mind. And when I got off the air, a very close friend of mine said, I heard you say hello, friends, at the start of the show today. What was that all about? I told him the story I just recited. He said, that sounds like you. He said, you ought to try it again tomorrow. That could be something you could do permanently. So I did it on the final round on the Sunday. And I've done it virtually every single show since. So it's a tribute to my dad. He's been gone since 08. Next month will mark 11 years. And every time I look into that camera, whether it's the Super Bowl, the Final Four, the Masters, and I say, hello, friends, I'll look into that lens. I see my dad on the other side. And it calms me and relaxes me. It makes me think of him. So, Jim, how did you get into broadcasting? I started when I was in school at the University of Houston. That's where I really got my first chance to get into it. But the dream began long before that. When I was about 11 years old, I used to think, man, that's the job I would love. I would love to one day grow up and be one of those voices covering these sporting events all over the world. 
I was so enchanted by their storytelling ability. I just imagine myself being in that role. It had nothing to do with wanting to be on television. It had everything to do with wanting to be able to move people with your words. Like a great pastor might during a homily or sermon. I just was in love with the idea of telling a story at big sporting events. And the one that I was drawn to the most was the Masters Tournament. I just would hear those voices at Augusta every year. And I thought, man, these guys are just, it's amazing the way they do this. Their knowledge is off the charts. So I went to the University of Houston, studied communications with the goal of somehow hoping to one day be discovered by CBS so that I could live out the childhood dream. Three and a half years after I graduated from college, I got this phone call out of nowhere. CBS had been monitoring some of my shows, invited me to come to New York to audition. I won the audition, and I've been there now 34 years. That's an amazing story. What is your favorite sport to call? Is it being part of the Masters? Well, I'm going to share a little secret with the two of you because you're such good friends. I get asked this a lot by (laughs) journalists, and it's always a tricky one because I have these three big events that are wrapped around their regular season, the NFL, with Tony Romo, who's a great friend, and we're having a ball. But every third year, we get to do the Super Bowl, like we did this past February. So I get asked, is it the Super Bowl, or is it the Final Four, or is it the Masters Tournament? And my stock answer is, you know, I'm a father of three. <laughs> it's like asking me, which one of my children do I like the most? You know, you love them all the same. But deep in my heart, the truth is, just between us, truth is that tournament down in Augusta, Georgia, was always, again, the impetus, the thing that inspired me to want to get into broadcasting was listening to the stories coming from the broadcasters of yesteryear at that event. So it's deep in the heart. They all are, but maybe that one just a little more. What's the most difficult sport to call? They all have their complexities, Doral, because you prepare for them differently. Your voice cadence and all of that is in energy levels are different. A football game with a stadium shaking with pulsating excitement near the end, and your voice has to cut through that energy wave to be heard. That's one thing. And then you've got the quiet tones and the conversational speak that you have in golf. And so I think that people wouldn't maybe understand this, but the storytelling demand on you in golf, you have longer stretches where I believe that the premium is put much more on the words that you use. If I'm bringing words to the booth, and that's my toolkit, I think the one that I use the most tools to get through a broadcast is in golf. I think it shows off your ability more than the fast pace of football and basketball to really be able to cut through and get to the heart of the story. And you do. I mean, nobody ever leaves you without crying. (laughs) Well, I'm not trying to do that. I got accused of that by a few people this year at the Masters because it was such an epic event with Tiger winning and his family behind the 18th green and the intensity of the hug between Tiger and his son, Charlie, and his daughter, Sam, it was such an awesome sight, and it really struck me. And I had definite emotion in my voice just uh, as a father. I looked at that scene, and and I was choking back tears. I wasn't on camera, of course, but I was watching it. Once the putt dropped to to close it out, I exclaimed, the return to glory is what I said over that last shot. After that, for the almost three minutes, Nick Faldo and I just decided to sit back and let the pictures speak for themselves, which is the right thing to do. And when we finally did talk, I said that moment with his family, 
if you didn't have a tear in your eye and you're a parent, you're not human. Jim, how do you prepare for games, and what is your routine between each game? It's a different, again, for these three primary sports. For the NFL, I'd be sitting in my office today, and I'd be making phone calls and be reading material from around the league from the two teams that I will be calling on that coming weekend. I'd be putting together all these spotting boards, we call them. They're, in essence, uh, charts that show and diagram where each player is on the field when the ball is about to be snapped. I've got the offense against the defense. I've got all the players in the roster, their background. It's all cover-coded, and I have all of this down. And Most of it is just committing to memory when you do write it down because you can't watch your board as you're watching a game. It's all reactionary. you got to be just snap of a finger. You've got to be telling people what you see at that moment. You can't read anything. That is labor-intensive. Not, again, that I'm looking for any pity party here. I'm loving what I'm doing, but the amount of hours to prepare for one three-hour football broadcast is somewhere in the 25 to 40-hour range. And then for basketball, that there are fewer players, obviously, in uniform, like 12 instead of 45 for football. It's easier to learn the names and numbers, but it has its own demands in terms of just the lead-up to the game. The golf, I feel like the golf is in my head. It's in my head and it's in my heart. I have nothing in front of me when I call golf. I like to say I broadcast golf from my heart. And sometimes I call on my brain to dial up some files and can pull out some information just on a moment's notice because of my, just my recall. I've been blessed. It's uh, such a paradox in some ways. My, my dad lost the battle to Alzheimer's. His mind went on him, as that is the case. And somehow my folks blessed me with a very good memory, at least at this point. And I'm able to use that in that sport to be able to call on moments and dates and times and winners of tournaments. And I don't have to look it up. I just play it again from the heart. If I have some research that I need, I just have these little files that are buried in my brain. I call on those. That's amazing. Is it been diagnosed, your memory, or you just have a great memory? <laughs> Trish, I've had people who have accused me sometimes of having a photographic memory. I know that's not the case. I just think that I really, when I'm passionate about things, for some reason, I can retain it at a level that sometimes I don't even understand. Last week, I was sitting around with a group of guys, and they were talking about Ben Hogan, who was a legendary golfer of over a half century ago. And someone said, when did Hogan die anyway? And I said, well, I believe it was July 25th, 1997. <laughs> and they said, no, come on. That's ridiculous. There's no way. I'm calling you out on that. So I saw like three guys at the table all reach for their phone and go to Google. I was just wondering which one would get to it first. And the guy threw the phone down and said, I'll be tired July 25th, 1997. (laughs) How in the heck did you know that? And I don't have an explanation, but sometimes I just remember these things. You know, describing the amount of work you have to do before every game, it really is intense. And I think because we talk about health, how do you take care of yourself? Well, that's vital that you make sure that like an athlete, now I'm not going to try to sound like I'm, Tom Brady or Tiger Woods, I'm not going to the lengths that they are, but some of the basics that I think hold true and are relatable for everybody, just common sense on your diet and rest. Now, I battle the rest side of it a lot because I'm on the move and I'm I'm going to different time zones constantly and I have to adjust. One day you're in Augusta, the next day you're in Pebble Beach and you've got to get on your family schedule or you've got to get on the schedule of the event that you're about to cover. 
And I just, we all feel sharper when we're better rested. And I just, I'm, I think I'm just very smart about diet, exercise, and sleep. You know, those are the three cornerstones of a life that's going to be productive. If you're cheating on any one of the three or you're not paying respect to it, you're never going to perform at your best. Right. And you're being around athletes, I guess you see them all taking very good care of themselves, right? They do. Again, if they want to be good, I mean, again, I'll take the two names that I just mentioned. Tom Brady has an entire diet and nutrition way of life that he's written a book on it, you know, TB12's Way to a Better Life or whatever it is. You know, he's very careful about everything that he consumes. He's also into all this pliability and stretching and not necessarily lifting for strength, but lifting for flexibility. And he stood up through the viciousness of the NFL in terms of the physicality of the game. He's in a position at quarterback where guys just, it's so easy. They're sitting targets oftentimes. And here he is this past season, 41, which by the way is my favorite number. Mm-hmm. Mine too. But at age 41, uh, he won another Super Bowl, his sixth. And I don't think that there's any doubt that if Tom wasn't as maniacal as he is about all of these things, that his career wouldn't have lasted this long. I mean, you're well past the life expectancy of an NFL quarterback. Then you got Tiger. He's going to outwork everyone in the gym. And I know he's careful about, too, what he eats. You know, again, in my world, which you asked me about, I try to, when things are going good, four to five times a week, at least get 20 minutes in of something. Tread stair climber, elliptical, some light lifting. Now that I've discovered air buds, I know I'm three or four years behind everybody else, where you can take a walk and you could be making phone calls without walking with one phone stuck to an ear. It frees you up. It's a good chance to do your work, do your maintenance in your life as far as phone calls and other things you need to catch up on. At the same time, go out and take a nice long walk and enjoy the scenery. And I love these cities I go to. And I'm in a different place. Every This last week, I was in Houston for a couple of days, Charlotte and Augusta. And to be able to go into a city and find a great park or a place that maybe goes through some a neighborhood and just be able to kind of explore around at the same time, if you want to, you can listen to music, make some phone calls. It's great. You're getting a lot of things done. I'm a guy that's a checklist guy. I have to be productive. And at the end of the day, if I feel like I wasn't productive, I'm not feeling real good about myself. So productivity and knocking off things that you need to do, I'm keen on that. We know that having healthy relationships is part of the integrative approach to health. Do you see this affecting the athletes that you know? Oh, I think that healthy relationships, it gets back to two. You know, I think that when you're in a good place and your life is in a rock solid formation, foundation, that you're able to achieve great things. I can definitely speak to that on just my own level to have the love and support of an incredible wife who is just an incredible partner and companion and a mom that just, I'm just blown away by how she handles so many things. She's a buzzsaw and she does it with love and care and warmth and a smile on her face. And I've never been happier. And I see that when people are at their best and they're happy, great things happen. I'm going to give you two recent examples and I'm going to go just because it's recently played, but I'll go with the Masters. In 2017, Sergio Garcia won, and he was in such a good place with his life. He was getting married later that summer of 17. Going into the tournament, some people asked, who do you think is going to win this week? I don't normally make golf predictions. It's too hard. You're rarely right. 
But I said, you know, I like Sergio. I didn't know anything about the state of his game coming into that tournament week, but I knew from what I had seen just being around him that he was happy. He was wearing his happiness, and I knew that he had found the love of his life. And sure enough, he won that Masters tournament. Take this year. Now, Tiger, we already addressed what we saw with his kids. Well, his girlfriend, Erica, I don't know her really at all. I've met her, just really met her for the first time recently. But after Tiger won the Masters, I saw her and I congratulated her. And she said, well, I, thank you, but I really didn't have anything to do with it. I said, oh, no, no, you actually had a lot to do with this. Because I know, I have seen people when they perform their best, their life is in such a great place. Everything feeds off of that. If in your heart and in your soul, life is sweet, everything else is going to be a derivative of that. And you've made him, it's obvious, feel a level of happiness that it just seems like I've never seen him in a place like this before. Your fingerprints are all over this victory. And she said, oh, that is very sweet of you. Thank you. But I believe it. Sure, there are people that have run counter to that. But I do like to think that it doesn't matter the field that you're in, if you're a golfer, a broadcaster, whatever it is, to have that foundation solid and you got your life on these other issues you talked about that could be issues, diet, exercise, and rest. If you get all that down, you have that stability in your life. My goodness, fantastic things can happen. So you referenced storytelling. You are the best storyteller. You should have like a master class on storytelling. Definitely. <laughs> you are an amazing storyteller. You have come up to our house in Maine and we've all sat around and you've told amazing stories. How did you become such a great storyteller? And then I want you to tell the story of the golf game with Tom Brady, President 41, President 42, and you. <laughs> Doro, you're funny. Well, how did I become a great storyteller? I don't feel like I am, but I appreciate you saying that. I really try to be. I feel like that's my job. I feel like above all, that's how I define my work. And a lot of folks think that in the world of sports broadcasting, it's about the numbers, the stats. I get a lot of mail from young aspiring broadcasters, and they'll tell me, I know all the batting averages and the statistics and I want to be, one day I want to be doing what you're doing. What's your advice? And I always say the same thing. Dispense, get rid of the, with the numbers. Forget the numbers. This isn't anything about numbers. It's about people. It's about finding a heartbeat. You know, we want to be enthralled by the subjects that we're watching. We want to have a reason to root for them. And I've just put such a heavy emphasis my entire career on trying to just be able to do that. And I think in my youth, and I mentioned I would listen to the Jim McKay's and Jack Whitaker's, Pat Summerall's, Dick Emberg's, all these great broadcasters of my youth. And they just had a way that seemed as though they were talking to me and they reached into my soul and I connected with them. And I wanted to be like that. Always wanted to be like that. So still trying to find ways to try to be as good at that as I can be. But I'm going to tell you now about those great days of golf up there. In 2005, if you just go back on the time of it, in the holidays of 04, that tsunami hit Southeast Asia. It was just devastating to that part of the world. And 43 put 41 and 42 together as President Bush, President Clinton to get together and lead a worldwide fundraising initiative called the Bush-Clinton Fund, I think it was called. And they became, through globe trotting around the world, and it ended up raising $1.5 billion 
through their incredible efforts. A friendship was spawned during all of this. But I can remember I was at the Final Four in St. Louis in 05. This is just months after the tsunami and weeks into their fundraising efforts. I got a call, Doro, from your dad. And he said, Jimmy, can you do me a favor? Well, I knew that in his world, he was never going to actually ask you for a favor. He was about to lay the biggest favor in the world on you, on me. So, yes, sir, I would do anything for him. All he had to do was ask. But in this case, he said, you know, President Clinton and I have been spending a lot of time together. We thought it'd be fun this summer to get together and play around the golf or get together on a social basis. Like, have a little, like, you know, a little getaway. No media. Just go have some fun. And we finally decided the best place to do it would be Walker's Point in Kennebunkport, which, as you know, I've been fortunate enough to go up there every summer since the early 90s. So he said, we've decided, though, that to keep things going without the conversation deviating into world events or politics, it'd be nice to have a, like an intermediary, like a third guy there to keep the conversation going. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. He said, well, we've decided you're the guy to do that. Would you do us the favor of coming up this summer to Kenny Bunkport and hanging out with us for a couple of days? <laughs> well, how do you answer that? I said, well, of course. He said, well, we need to get a date from you. We both decided you're a lot busier than we are. You're working every week. Give us a date. So I can actually remember I gave him a date that didn't work, I think, for President Clinton, but came back and asked for a second date. and That did work, June 28th and 29th of 05. And, well, Doro, you were there. So it was just an amazing get-together and about, I don't know, Maybe by the end of the first day, of course, the media found out or saw all of us out on the Fidelity boat cruising along the Kennebunkport Harbor and port. And with a long lens, they got a shot of the two presidents on the boat having a good time together. And next thing you know, it's on the evening news and blah, blah, blah. But we played golf. We had a great time. And it was such a hit that they decided they wanted to do it the following summer. And the following summer was 06. And this time, your dad came up with the idea, it sure be nice to have another guy to play golf with us. Well, we could have Ken Rayner, the pro at Cape Arundel, play the first year, and they love Ken. There's no problem there. They just, president thought it might be neat to bring in somebody that President Clinton would get a big kick out of. So he said, Jimmy, you know all these athletes. I mean, is there anybody that you think would come join us? And I don't want anybody to like, fly from California and be put out to come back here to Maine. Is there anybody close by or somewhere <laughs> in the East Coast you can think of? And I said, well, how about Tom Brady? And I, I heard silence on the other end of the phone. I thought I, the light had dropped. And then your dad, and only the way he could do it, said, you, you, you mean the New England Patriots quarterback? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. Uh, you know, he's right down the road in Foxborough, and, and he's a good player. I've seen him play, and <laughs> I think he would be a great guy to, to join us. He says, yeah, but do you really think Tom Brady would come up here and play golf with us? I said, you know, sir, let me see. President Bush, President Clinton, I kind of like our chances. (laughs) By all means, invite them. (laughs) So I can remember that phone call with your dad. I was in Fort Worth, Texas, covering a tournament called the Colonial. Well, I hung up the phone, and, you know, I had Tom's magic number in my cell phone, and I called him right away. And Tom's answer to me when I threw it out there to him was, where are you right now? Because I can remember it was about 5.30 in the afternoon. And I said, I'm in Fort Worth. And he says, have you had a margarita already or two? Uh, <laughs> what's going on down there? 
I said, no, no, this is serious. I know I have not. <laughs> this is a legitimate. He said, oh, man, I've got a off-season practice called an OTA is what they call them. But I might be able to get out of one of the two days. I would love to be there. Anyway, short of it is he came. And not only did he come up to Kenny Bumport, he arrived in grand fashion. He coppered onto the sacred side of Walker's Point. <laughs> I can still remember the two presidents like little kids, you know, waiting for an autograph. They were standing off to the side to greet the arrival of the chopper. They were so giddy with excitement. <laughs> <laughs> they dropped the stairs down and like a presidential visit off steps Tom Brady and these two guys are basically almost like trying to outrun the other to run a big hand first. We played golf and just had such an epic time. And Tom stayed for dinner and he did leave the next morning. So he had one day and one night there. But that round of golf, we played a game called sixes where every six holes you switch your partner. So I played with President Clinton the first six. That meant Tom and 41 were partners. And the Bush-Brady team beat us one up in that match. In the middle leg of hole 7 through 12, I played with 41. And we played the Clinton-Brady duo to a draw. Now we get to the last six holes, and you would ride with your teammates. There was always you're switching the bags around, so you ride the cart together. So we've got our bags on the same cart. And Tom looked at me and said, this is just, uh, this is indescribable. And I said, yeah, well, let me tell you something. I think if you look it up, there's never been in the history of our country an occasion where two former presidents played a match against two guys off the street, which basically <laughs> we are. We have a chance to make history over these last six holes, Tom. This is a big deal. This is history making. Well, I was trying to give him my best Belichick inspirational speech, and Tom, like, I suddenly looked into his eyes, and he had that gaze that I've seen many times when the Patriots are down three points with two minutes to go, and he drives them down the field to a win. It was like, I've got this. <laughs> and boy, did he ever. We ended up winning that last six-hole stretch. Five up. That meant we won five of the six holes <laughs> and half the other. It was a blowout. And by the way, it was all Tom. I contributed nothing to the cause. But I can remember as we were coming up the 18th, President Clinton came over and he looked like a defeated man on this occasion. <laughs> and he, he said, boy, you guys, you guys sure don't take it easy on a couple of old presidents, do you? <laughs> I looked at Brady and I said, welcome to the NFL, Mr. President. <laughs> one another it was tremendous. I love that. We went to lunch at Barnacle Billy's. We were there, Doro. Trish, you might have been there, too. She was. And we got to Barnacle Billy's by boat. When we were pulling into the harbor in Algonquin, there was no one in that little seaport. We came in unannounced. And we got off the boat and hopped through the town, you know, just a couple hundred feet and climbed the spiral staircase up to the sun deck and began to enjoy our lobster roll sandwiches. And from that point, President Clinton was heading back. The motorcade was going to meet us 10 minutes later or whatever after lunch, and they were going to whisk him away. And then we were going to go back to Walker's Point by boat. And I happened to like get up at one point and look over the rail. And that same little harbor seaport, which was empty upon arrival, now there were like 100 or maybe even a couple of hundred people milling about waiting for the two presidents to come back out of the restaurant and have a glimpse, maybe even take a picture. The word had spread super fast. And I went over to Tom and I said, hey, 
you're going to see something here in a few minutes that I want you to take note of. I think he was 27 years old at the time. He'd already won a couple of Super Bowls. I said, you know, you're going to be Tom Brady the rest of your life. You're going to step into the public arena and people are going to always want a piece of you. There might be 10 people in the world that you could actually learn from when it comes to how to handle the crush of the crowd. And you got two of them right here, two of the best ever at reaching out. And you're going to see they're going to make everybody feel like they shook their hands. And they're not being physically able to do that. That's not going to be possible. But they're going to make eye contact. And everybody's going to walk away and say they saw him and they had a moment with the presidents. And I said, just watch this and take it as a learning experience. We climbed down the stairs. And sure enough, they walked into that sea of people and shaking hands and still moving. You know, quick picture here, still moving. And it was just a beautiful thing to watch. Suddenly it dawned on me because we were going to be heading back over to the boat. Here we were in the heart of Patriots Nation in Maine. And Tom Brady is off to the side. And so far, not one person has asked him for his picture (laughs) or for an autograph. He was invisible on this occasion because the two presidents had sucked and drawn everyone in to their sphere. They were just surrounded. And it was just so fantastic to watch the way they made everybody feel special. I'll put it that way. We got back on the boat and I said, well, Tom, what did you think? He said, I'm just in awe. I'm just absolutely in awe what I just saw. He said, I'm never going to forget this the rest of my life. Jim Nance, still the master storyteller. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was incredible. (laughs) Jim, are there any particular athletes that stand out who take care of themselves sans Tom's Brady, because we know he's <laughs> head and shoulders above everyone else, but who take care of themselves, mind, body, and spirit? And do you see a difference in their performance and how they treat others? Well, let me think here. You know, my basketball abilities are really restricted to the college game. I don't follow the NBA, so I couldn't speak to that. But on the NFL side, I would say. You're not going to be in the league very long if you're not paying full attention to this. We've talked about Tom. We've talked about Tiger. Two iconic figures. And I'll give you a third, Peyton Manning. You know, Peyton Manning won his last game he ever played it, which was Super Bowl 50. And he turned 40 about a month after that game. His career has faced one real trouble point, and that was he had like a neck fusion, neck surgery. Late in his career as a member of the Indianapolis Colts, a lot of people thought he was it was done, it was over, and he went on and played four great years for the Broncos, took him to two Super Bowls, won the last game, as I mentioned, he ever played it. Well, you know, he took really good care of himself. He still does to this day in retirement. It's a vast difference from the athletes of yesteryear. I made this statement the other day to someone that here I am about to turn 60, which hard to believe. How did we get here so fast? But I'm thankful to be here and have the many blessings that I've been given. But the diet and exercise, particularly the diet side of it, what we know now versus just what I didn't know 10 years ago, much less 20 years ago. And I think about the kids that are coming along today. Take my kids. As you know, I have a couple of young kids. I have my five-year-old Finley, my three-year-old Jameson, and my older daughter, my love, Caroline. But these young kids today, they have the benefit of putting fuel into their tank since day one that has been thought out and has been game planned as 
with an emphasis on nutrition. I'm not saying that my mother shirked that responsibility. She was always keen on trying to do the right things, but it's so much more advanced all these years later. I mean, my goodness, in the last 10 years alone, how much more we know about the right foods to eat and those to stay away from. And it's just the longevity for this generation that's coming along now with all the things that they have, the benefits. It's just tremendous. I wish that when I was 40, I ate as far as nutritionally like I do today. It's just, it's a completely different ballgame. Yeah. We talk about that a lot. The other thing too, when you talk about health and wellness is stress and you are in the hot seat when you're calling these games. I mean, your Super Bowl, the Masters, all that. How do you handle stress or how do you look at stress? It's a tough one. And I think that we all know there's positive benefits of handling pressure and anxiety and what the laser focus that can come of that from out of that. I felt a lot of stress early in my career. I mean, I was 26 when I got hired by the network and I was trying to be mature beyond my years. I was 26 when I broadcast my first master's and I kept thinking, man, doesn't anybody here at CBS realize I'm only 26? What am I doing here? This is nuts. Of course, the whole while I'm trying to come off like I'm some sort of you know, sage when reality is, you know, four years earlier, I'm living in a dorm room and going to the school cafeteria three times a day. <laughs> but I did internalize a lot of that stress and I struggled with it early in my career as far as just being anxious and making things bigger than they were because I knew it was high stakes. It still is. It's always going to be high stakes when you're dealing with whatever it is in your world. I'm trying to say mine's any more than anyone else's. My world happens to be live television. And if you get lost or you have something on the air that's inaccurate or you say something that someone takes either offense to or objects to, you know, all of these are going to happen in the length of a career that I've been lucky enough to have. And it's just always there, the stress to perform, a live performance to be on. All I can say for me is it just seems like it's gotten easier. Not that I don't still emphasize everything and the effort level is as much as it ever was, if not more, as you realize you're definitely on the second half of your career. But for whatever reason, I've been able to keep myself pretty calm. And I've never had like a big high blood pressure or anything. I'm just pretty docile. And I can remember asking this question. Here's the thought. Fred Couples, who you guys know, was a roommate of mine in college at the University of Houston. And right out of school, you know, three years before I made it to the network, he was making on the PGA Tour. We were just all in awe of our buddy being big time out there playing against the likes of Jack Nicholas and even the latter part of Arnold Palmer's career and all those big names. And they happened to be in Fred's company when I was about to go to New York to audition. Again, I just gotten this call out of nowhere. And next thing I know, I'm on a plane to New York. And I said, I didn't know who to turn to because I was definitely feeling some anxiety about going back just for the audition. And I said to Fred, who was staying with me out in uh, Salt Lake City where I was working at that time, I said, how do you do this? I mean, don't you ever walk onto the first tee and say, my gosh, I'm competing against Jack Nicholas. What am I doing here? Well, that's what I feel like. I've had this crazy, obsessive, compulsive dream of working for CBS one day. Well, now I'm going back to audition for that job. How do I keep myself calm? How do you do it? And he said that like a broken record, I've never had this discussion with him again, but I'll never forget. He told me, just keep telling yourself over and over and over again. It's not that big a deal. 
it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. And he was playing tricks. Remember, this was Freddie at 25, 26, like I was at that time. And he was playing these mind games with himself to try to keep him calm. And I can actually remember sitting in the CBS broadcast center and about to go audition a one-shot deal. And I was almost chanting. I was afraid maybe I was even outwardly verbalizing. This is no big deal. This is no big deal. This is is what Freddie told me to think. You ready, kid? You ready? All right, we're going to get started here at 10, 9, 8. No big deal. (laughs) And, you know, I did that for a long time. But I think we all make things to be bigger than they really are sometimes in terms of when we put pressure on ourselves. You know, life goes on for people. And things that we make such a big to-do about in the grand scheme of things, you know, people have their own concerns. It's like the fear of the first tee shot in golf. Everybody thinks everybody's watching them and they put way too much undue pressure on them. Or making a speech and feeling like the world is just hanging on what you're going to say and you know, how do I get through this? Whatever it might be, whatever that little hurdle is, I think we all just need to say that most people are not even going to be paying that much attention to it in the long run. You know, life's going to keep moving on. And I think Fred really helped me in that regard. So, Jim, we ask everybody who comes mm-hmm. on our podcast, what book do you think everyone should read? Wow. I have a lot of books that I love that go back a long, long time. I love the book, the letters book that your dad wrote, All the Best, because it was a snapshot of how someone interacted with people and 100% of the time did it the right way and just brilliant the way that these letters were authored and the care and the attention to detail and the word selection is just genius. But more than anything else, it's a reflection on how you treat people. And the art of interacting with people, to me, is the key to advancing in whatever the world is that you want to enter. You want to be a broadcaster, you want to be a politician, you want to be a social media consultant. I mean, whatever it is, you've got to be able to master the art of communicating with people to get people to believe in you or people to work with you or understand you or give you a chance for your message, sales, whatever it might be. The art of communicating with people, in some ways, it's, I think, really always, it's so vastly underrated. I read through that book and just looked at these interactions with people in all walks of life, all stations of life, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot from that. I think everyone could. So that's been a book that I've recommended to many people through the years. So I'll say that one. Mm, That one, one. you know, that one, of course, you know, I love all these books about the great 41 who I only think about 10 times a day, but my father, my president, you know, oh, that good was one. beautiful. Excellent, Excellent one. choice <laughs> there. Really. I'm not just saying this. I know you know that. It's truly beautiful. A gift. Anybody picks that up has a chance to learn and prosper from it. Jim, besides the quote that Freddie gave you, this is no big deal. Do you have another favorite <laughs> quote? <laughs> my favorite quote, I'm going to stay now like I did with the books. I'm going to stay down the 41 path here. And <laughs> I'm probably going to be paraphrasing this a little bit. But I know what it means, and that is no life is fully complete or successful unless it's a life that includes service to others. I think about all the time, how much of your life do you get out of your own bubble and think about something that you can do to make someone else's day a little bit brighter? And it goes into a lot of realms. 
it goes from everything from getting involved as a volunteer and philanthropy and charity and all of that. But service to others can mean a lot of things. That can even mean interpreted to just how much time do you play with your kids? My life right now, as I reach a milestone birthday, at least it feels like it is, I realize this next decade between 60 and 70, these are like the most important 10 years I'll ever have. I'm going to reevaluate that when I turn 70. Right. <laughs> 70 to 80 will be. But like from 60 to 70 for me, with two small children, if I don't make the most out of these 10 years, then I've really never gotten any of those messages that I was lucky enough to have a front row seat and see it done the right way right up there in Kenny Bunkport. My kids are going to be growing up. And, you know, I want that time with them. I want to be of service, if you will, using an interpretation of the message. I want my life to be a dedication to absolutely maximizing every single minute I can with them, trying to make those fantastic, great, solid memories. Because, you know, my kids, they've got an older father. And if you just do the math on it, you know, and I'm blessed enough to have good help for a long, long time, it's still not going to ever be enough time for me to be with my kids when it's all said and done. That's why, for me, it's, it's just a giant emphasis that I maximize as many years that I would like to have with them and jam them into these times that I have with them now and be able to have 60 years worth of great memories that a parent should have with a child. And let me hope that I can do that in 30 years worth of time by being a service with my time and my commitment to them. They are lucky children. They sure are. Jim, (laughs) you are a special human being. You are. And we're just so happy you could join us on Health Gig and just know we love you and we thank you. I adore my time with both of you and your families, and I hope there's much more to come. Bless you both and your families. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.